You're listening to the Buddhist Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Tom. Uh, in this episode, I spoke to Jay Garfield. This is going to be part one uh, from a discussion I had with him. And we're going to be talking about why it's important to engage with Buddhist philosophy and how we can go about doing so. Okay, so today I'm joined by a pioneer of cross-cultural philosophy. My guest started in academia thinking he would be working exclusively on Western philosophy, psychology and cognitive science, but his career has gone in quite a different trajectory. Thanks to some chance encounters in the 1990s, uh, followed by a dedicated study at the Central Institute of Higher Tibetan Studies, Jay has become an expert in Tibetan Buddhist philosophy and one of the most vocal proponents of engagement between what is called Western and non-Western philosophy. Today, he holds professorial positions at Smith College, Harvard Divinity School, the University of Melbourne, and the Central Institute of Higher Tibetan Studies. He has written and edited books on Hume, Indian philosophy during the British occupation, logic, and Buddhist philosophy. He is among, uh, among many other works. He has established a pioneering exchange program at Smith College for students to learn Tibetan Buddhist philosophy in India, and contributed to the transformation of Sophia into a truly global philosophy journal as editor-in-chief. Today, we're going to talk about his book, Engaging Buddhism, Why It Matters to Philosophy, where he shows how and why the Western philosophical tradition can benefit from engagement with Buddhist philosophy. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I guess we can start off with talking about um, kind of what the goal of the book is and what it's trying to achieve. So in um, an article that's become, you know, very highly talked about, uh, in the New York Times called If Philosophy Won't Diversify that you did with Brian Van Norden, um, you kind of identify something that you both see as wrong with philosophy as it currently is. Uh, so what is that? Okay, the first thing to say is that I think that since the publication of that editorial, we really have seen a bit of movement in the right direction and that philosophy over the world is globalizing a lot more rapidly than it was when we wrote that. There's still a very, very long way to go. But here's the big picture. In, and this is still true in the vast, vast majority of departments. So when I say that there's been progress, it's been at the margins, not at the center. In general, when you look at philosophy departments, departments called philosophy around the world, this is not just true in, the, in North America and the UK and Europe, but even true in much of Asia and Africa, philosophy departments address only European philosophy, beginning with Greek philosophy and moving up through uh, the contemporary period, steadfastly ignoring the philosophical traditions of East Asia, South Asia, Africa, um, the indigenous people of North America, Oceania, and so forth. And there's nothing wrong with studying European philosophy. I do a great deal of that. And the European tradition is a rich and valuable tradition. But to study only philosophy written by white people, effectively to make philosophy a sub-discipline of white studies, does a terrible disservice to the philosophical traditions of the rest of the world. And it does a terrible disservice to the students and practitioners of philosophy generally. To my mind, it would be as though we decided to only study texts published on Mondays and Thursdays and ignored the texts published on all of the other days of the week. There's something terribly arbitrary about it, but it's more than simply arbitrary because we have to pay attention to the historical context in which this occlusion of the philosophical traditions of most of the world occurs. And that historical context is the shadow of colonialism. So when we look at the history 
history of colonialism. It's the history of asserting a kind of European hegemony over the rest of the world with the implication or the, even the direct assertion of the superiority of European culture over that of the cultures of the rest of the world and a right to a kind of dominance and exclusion of those cultures from intellectual study or to the degree that we study them, to study them only as historical or anthropological curiosities. Now, most of us agree that that was a really bad idea, that it was intellectually bankrupt, that it was morally bankrupt, and that it was politically disastrous. But to the extent that we continue that process in the discipline of philosophy, by continuing to ignore and to occlude the intellectual traditions of the rest of the world, we're effectively continuing that intellectually and morally irresponsible uh, practice. Um, and so we could see the post-colonial period, as, in, at least in philosophy is not a hell of a lot different from the colonial period. So I see the problem as intellectual, that is we ignore a great deal of what is of value, a great deal of what human uh, cultural practice and uh, cultural production has to offer us, but also immoral in that that ignoring isn't simply a benign neglect, but actually a, a passive continuation of a history of denigration. So when Brian and I wrote that article, that editorial, our call was simply for philosophy departments to stop doing this. If you want to call yourself a department of Western philosophy and think of yourself as a part of area studies, go ahead. But the idea that we really need an area studies for just white people seems to me to be a little bit off. Much better for philosophy to truly diversify and to pay attention to the philosophical traditions of the entire world. We all gain a lot from that, again, both politically and morally, but also intellectually. So had there been any like good faith engagements or criticisms of that article that you've kind of found convincing at all? No. Right. Um, in a word. Um, as you probably know, we set a record for the number of responses to a stone, um, stone editorial and the Times had to shut the website down within a few hours um, because it was crashing. There was so much response. And um, most of that response, not all of it, but a lot of it, was um, horrific, some of it from practicing professional philosophers who ought to know better, or at least ought to know better than to sign their names to that kind of trash. Yeah. Um, we had people arguing um, that people outside of the European tradition couldn't really think clearly, that all of that was just religion, even though they had never read it, um, that there was nothing rationally useful. Um, one horrific piece um, just charged that people from certain traditions weren't literate enough to produce philosophy. Um, or people argued that, gee, we don't have the resources to cover, quote, the core, and so we can't start looking at peripheral work, not noticing that this talk of core and periphery is itself uh, ferociously uh, prejudicial and even racist. Um, a whole lot of really bad arguments, no arguments that I could really take seriously. But it's hard to argue for that position seriously. So decide that you just want to start from zero and argue that in most universities, we ought to systematically ignore the cultures and the ideas of everybody in the world who's not white. Now, start making that argument and do it with a straight face and in good, in good conscience. It's impossible to do. Hmm. I, I suppose there are a couple of clarifications that we need to make, like, you know, Western philosophy and non-Western philosophy is not so clear-cut. Um, That's right. And I think you're aware of that uh, and engage with it. 
and there's been so I saw quite an interesting uh, it was kind of like an opening lecture by Tommy J. Curry recently where he criticized the kind of notion of diversity when uh, you know uh, white people call for it because it keeps with it this kind of white habitus and I'm kind of assuming that you kind of you know those are actual engagements which aren't you know they're on kind of the, the similar position to you and you'd be somewhat sympathetic to them that's right that's a difference in how we theorize this enterprise mm. i think there are reasonable discussions to be held there one of the things that brian and i point out in the editorial and that i point out in a lot of my work including in engaging buddhism is that the very construction of western philosophy is itself a kind of fictional construction mm. because it presupposes a siloing and of philosophical traditions and a lack of interaction between them that is in fact historically inaccurate. Western philosophers um, throughout history have been learning from Asian philosophy and indeed from African philosophy. We include people like St. Augustine mm. and people in Asian traditions have been paying attention to Western philosophy. And we tend in, since the 18th and 19th century to um, fail to notice just how much interaction has actually been. Right. So um, this book, Engaging Buddhism, that we're talking about, uh, mm -hmm. what is that book's contribution uh, in light of this? Well, that book was intended as a book addressed primarily to Western philosophers who were open to the possibility of a truly cross-cultural philosophy and were interested in how to do that in particular cases and how their own work might benefit from or their own teaching might benefit from engaging with Buddhism. A secondary audience in my mind were scholars in Buddhist studies who really needed some kind of blueprint for how to talk to their philosophical colleagues and for how to engage with Western philosophy. Because by the way, I think this is very much a two-way street. And it's important to remember that the book that I'd written well before this was a book that was written in English and Tibetan in facing pages for Tibetan scholars called Western Idealism and its Critics to show what Tibetan philosophers, how to engage with Western philosophy. So I do see this as very much a two-way street. But so the idea was this, for philosophers who say read Bryan's in my article or were just independently interested and said, gee, I really do see that it would be intellectually valuable and maybe even morally incumbent to take other intellectual traditions seriously. But I just don't know how to go about it. Um, this was meant to be a kind of beginner's how-to manual for that. And I think to some extent it's been successful in that, in that respect. Um, Oxford is now doing a series of books um, following up on, on that book um, on specific areas of philosophy uh, for Western philosophers. So um, Buddhist, uh, metaphysics for philosophers, Buddhist epistemology for philosophers, Buddhist logic for philosophers, and Buddhist ethics for philosophers. And in fact, I'm right now in the middle of writing Buddhist ethics for philosophers. So it will have a whole series of more specific kind of approaches uh, or manuals, if you want, for how to engage. Um, and by the way, this is meant only as a kind of example. I think we could do the same thing in the context of Chinese philosophy or African philosophy. Native American philosophy and Islamic philosophy and so forth. Um, it's just that the area that I like to work in is Buddhist philosophy. I think that, for example, I think that philosophy needs to be prosecuted in a truly global way if it's going to be uh, the discipline that it can be. 
Right. And um, um, oh, it's gone completely around my head what I was going to say. Um, so, so can you tell me, so there's, there's a bit of um, kind of questions there because, you know, you clearly need a kind of methodology and kind of rules uh, with this kind of new engagement. So one of the things that, um, you know, I imagine people will ask you is kind of, why are you so interested in Buddhism? Or they might even ask you far more explicitly, you know, are you a Buddhist? Um, you know, are you a practicing Buddhist? Are you uh, ordained or whatever else? And my understanding is that you don't really answer that question. And I think that's a really kind of um, important um, kind of thing that you've done there. So can you tell me a bit about why you don't do that? Sure. And I'm going to tell you about that by telling you an actual true story. Um, a bunch of years ago, now about maybe 15 years ago, we hosted the 14th Dalai Lama um, at Smith College and the five colleges. Um, and actually, I guess it was 10 years ago because it was on the 20th anniversary of our exchange program. And um, part of his, as part of his visit, he held a faculty seminar for faculty members in Buddhist studies in the five colleges and a bunch of uh, outlying areas. So we had about 30 or 40 um, scholars of Buddhist studies, teachers of Buddhist studies in the room with the Dalai Lama. Um, and he opened, and the, the theme of the, I should say, the theme of the seminar was the role of academic Buddhism, academic Buddhist studies in the transmission of Buddhism to the West. So that was the theme of the seminar. And the Dalai Lama opened the seminar by asking a very interesting pair of questions. The first question he asked was, I want a show of hands. How many of you, when you are teaching Buddhist studies at your colleges, are asked by your students, are you a Buddhist? And every hand went up. That's not surprising. The second question he asked was this, how many of you answer that question? And about half the hands went up. And he said, I want to advise you not to answer that question. And here's why. You're teaching at secular institutions. There may be students in your classrooms who are interested in Buddhist studies, but who are not Buddhists. And if they suspect that you're a Buddhist, they might think that you're engaged in religious indoctrination. And so they won't listen to you carefully and they won't treat your ideas seriously and they won't learn as much. On the other hand, there may be students in your class who are practicing Buddhists. And if they were to learn that you are not a Buddhist, they might think, oh, this person doesn't have any authority to teach this tradition. This person's an outsider. I don't need to listen to them. And they won't learn as much. Or they might try to take you as their spiritual teacher and mistake an academic for a religious setting. So I advise, he said, that you simply not answer that question. And then he said with a laugh, I try to do the same thing, but nobody believes me. Um, now, I think that was extremely good advice, um, advice that most of us should follow. After all, people who are teaching metaphysics um, aren't generally asked, are you a Catholic? Are you a Protestant? Are you a Jew? Are you a Muslim? As though we need to know that in order to understand what they're teaching. People who are, who are teaching, say, um, British philosophy aren't asked, are you an Anglican? Um, and not taken seriously if they're not an Anglican or not taken seriously if they are. 
This really is a kind of legacy of Orientalism, that we think that it's really important to know about the religious practice or authenticity of somebody who's studying a tradition. And I really don't want to participate in that at all. Um, my own personal life, whether I turn out to be religious or not, is completely irrelevant to my philosophical work and it's nobody's business. Mm. And I guess, you know, it's, it's not as if there aren't truths of the matter about what your beliefs and whatever you do are. And it's not that, you know, as an educator, you're kind of transcending and it's, it's, it's as if you kind of don't have any opinions. It's more that it's just not particularly relevant or helpful to constantly emphasize that because of the reasons that um, uh, the Dalai Lama said, particularly the kind of, you know, yeah, it would be awful if someone thought that you were their kind of teacher um, and would put you in a um, kind of power position and many people there that, you know, we would need to figure out how we deal with. Absolutely. I'll, I'll tell you another story that's relevant to this. Um, and, and by the way, let me say one more thing. It's not that I don't believe anything. I'm on record philosophically as arguing for lots of positions. Mm. I just think that it's irrelevant whether I'm part of a religious tradition in doing that or not. Um, we often, as part of our exchange program, um, host eminent Tibetan scholars um, in the five colleges and in Australian universities um, to teach Buddhist studies in, on our campuses. And most of these, not all of them, but most of them are monastic scholars. So they're, you know, they're monks or nuns and they're in robes with shaved heads and obviously religious figures. And I remember one time, one of my colleagues from the Tibetan Institute in Sarnat, um, who was visiting at Smith and Hampshire colleges, called me up and said, you know, Jay, I'm having a real problem. I said, what's that? He said, I've got several students who keep coming to my office with deep psychological problems, wanting me to help them and to give them spiritual advice. And I try to explain to them that I'm not here as a spiritual advisor and I'm not a qualified psychotherapist. I'm a philosopher teaching Buddhist philosophy. But the fact that I'm in robes makes them think that they can just come to me for spiritual and psychological advice and I really would like you to help me disabuse them of that fact. I think that's really important. Um, when people begin to see somebody as a religious figure, they stop thinking of them as an intellectual and start thinking of them in very different ways. And I don't think that any of us in Buddhist studies should be on that side of the fence, nor should we allow ourselves to be on the other side of the fence where we're treated as um, irresponsible outsiders who have nothing, no authority to talk about what we're talking about. Okay, so there's also kind of questions about kind of how we engage with Buddhism and, you know, I think your one, uh, your approach is very good. So this is kind of different um, between, so there's a difference between comparative and cross-cultural philosophy. Um, yes. And you, um, you are doing cross-cultural philosophy. So what's, what is that different? Okay, here's how I see it. And the... the philosopher to whom I would refer on this is an early 20th century Indian philosopher, Anukul Chandra Mukherjee, who taught at the University of Allahabad. And in an address he gave to the Indian Philosophical Congress in 1950, um, he really argued that the age of comparative philosophy was over and that it should be over. And he pointed out that it did a lot of good. I mean, it's worth remembering, by the way, this is something many people don't know is that the term comparative philosophy um, was coined by um, an important Indian philosopher at the end of the 19th century. Um, and his view 
was that comparative philosophy was important because when you compare two things, you treat them, as he put it, as of coordinate rank. This was the philosopher Bajendranath Seal, who taught at Presidency University in Calcutta. And his point was that in, for most of then recent history, Indian philosophy and Western philosophy were not seen as of, as he put it, coordinate rank. Western philosophy was seen as superior in Indian philosophy as kind of the domain of curators or anthropologists. And his view was that we needed a comparative philosophy to put these on an equal footing. Now, 50 years later, Mukherjee said, that was all well and good, but the work has been done. We all know that other philosophical traditions are of coordinate rank, um, are just as good as Western philosophy. And as he put it, comparative philosophy tends to simply notice a similarity here, a difference there, something that happened here that's like something that happened there, and can be an excuse to simply do the history of ideas rather than to engage seriously with the philosophical positions. And I think that's the great danger. We say something like, oh, Barclay and Vasubandhu were very similar. Isn't that interesting? And that allows us not to engage deeply with Vasubandhu's work, except to note where it's similar to Barclay's work or different from Barclay's work. Somebody says, oh, gee, Nagarjuna and Sextus Empiricus, they're very similar in these ways. And that's a way of avoiding deep engagement um, in favor of simply noticing similarities and differences. Um, so that's why I think that it's time to stop doing comparative philosophy. And what I advocate is a philosophy that draws freely and non-discriminatively from ideas and texts from any philosophical tradition. So a good philosophical article on a topic like, I don't know, knowledge of other minds, um, shouldn't simply draw on 19th and 20th century European philosophy, but should note that that was a problem that um, Udiyo Takara was discussing um, in, Indian, in India in the sixth century, that um, Casey Bhattacharya was discussing in India, that was discussed in China by Zhuangzi, and that all of the insights of these folks need to be brought to bear if we're going to really address the problem. To ignore the insights would be like saying, okay, you know what? Moore might have written about this at Cambridge, but he published that paper on a Thursday. And I don't cite things published on Thursdays. Um, really crazy, and as I said, also kind of um, disparaging. So what I advocate is simply really casting globally for ideas and integrating ideas and discussions from around the world. Mm. And there's also an element kind of, because it's not just that, um, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're on the same footing and it's kind of arbitrary because they're on Thursday. It's also because, um, you know, they are, the, the focuses in different traditions have been on somewhat different, um, you know, focuses and questions in some respect. And there we have a kind of benefit from a different perspective. Is that right? That's right. Um, a nice way to put this, and this idea comes from the German philosopher Hans-Gerd Gadamer, if what we're talking about is a conversation and we're talking about learning from somebody else, we need to satisfy two conditions. There's a proximity condition and a distance condition. The person or the tradition with whom we're in dialogue has to be close enough to us that we can understand what they're saying and that, they're talking, that we're talking about the same subject matter but they also have to be distant enough that they've got a distinct perspective 
that allows us to actually learn something from them. We don't have conversations with ourselves or with people who simply agree with us. We want to learn something from the conversation. So we need a little bit of difference in perspective, difference in method, difference in vocabulary, but also enough similarity in problematic that those differences are differences about the same matter. And what I've been arguing in for decades, and in particular in engaging Buddhism, is that those conditions are met almost universally when we look across cultures into philosophical traditions. They are close enough that we can read them and learn from them, and that we can engage with in dialogue with people who work in those traditions. But they are also distinct enough in their perspectives, in the way they've picked up a problem, in the arguments they've developed, and the examples they take to be important, that we have something uh, to learn from them.